Welcome to Broken City Podcast number eight. What is up? Yo! Today we decided that it might be cool to talk about one of our favorite bands, and I know Mike is not here today, but I know also one of his favorite bands, Rush. We thought it'd be cool to talk about how Rush has been super influential on us as musicians. And Rush, man, is an interesting one. It's like, there was definitely a point where, like, I started at Loving Rush... I must have been eight or nine years old when mm-hmm. I first heard Rush through my brother Ryan. And he played guitar and he had bands and they like bands would set up in our house. And was, this was like before I actually played drums, but I was just like, drums. Yeah. You know, and I'd hear moving pictures is what I heard the most. Mm-hmm. I think moving pictures and maybe um, uh, songs like La Via Strangiato mm-hmm. and The Trees and, and, and that kind of era of Rush, the late late 70s early 80s stuff right and just being like I just remember listening to the sound of the drums and just being obviously blown away like every other kid at that time there's so many drums yeah. and he's hitting so many <laughs> and it's so fast and it's so it's just so like visceral and incredible yeah. it's like a he was a drum superhero yeah he was it was like some people love Batman some people <laughs> love Neil Peart or Peart whoever it is the Canadians say Peart but, you know, like, for those of you who don't know, you know, Neil Peart retired, retired. Yeah, just recently. Just in the past couple months, and so we're assuming that means the end of Rush. I mean, I haven't read... <laughs> Unless somebody fills in his spot. Maybe John Rutsey will come back. Yeah, or Charlie Watts. <laughs> there you go. That'd be why. That'd be pretty interesting, actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> My experience with Rush is, like, um, kind of like yours, in a sense that there was a kid that lived across the street from me who was in all these cool bands, like Elvis Costello and... I don't know what else, but things like that. And he also had moving pictures. That was the first album I heard. Yep. So I go to his house, and you go, you got to check this band out. And I listen, and I was like, whoa, this is awesome. It was around the same time that I heard Led Zeppelin, and I had these silver dollars that my grandma gave me, and there's this guy up the street, and I bought all these Led Zeppelin records for like a buck. <laughs> and my silver dollars, you know, you spent all my silver dollars on Led Zeppelin records. So Isn't that just one silver dollar? Well, I had several. <laughs> I had five silver dollars, so I was able to buy five records. Okay. But anyways... It was around that cool time, though, where I was, like, getting into, like, Led Zeppelin, and then there was Rush, and Rush was way more, you know, obviously more progressive, so it was, like, an extension of that for me, you know? That's interesting, man, because you, you loved both, right? Oh, yeah. At the time? Yeah. There's this, like, and certain yeah. stigma around Rush as compared to almost everything else, but Rush and Yes and certain prog rock bands. But even those bands are not into rush you know in a way like there's a they're kind of frown upon that's true yeah. i don't rush is kind of its i think own there's thing. a lot of reasons why i mean we can we can guess yeah. but i'll give you my sure. opinion of why but like obviously led zeppelin i think stands on some sort of higher tier of mm-hmm. of um i guess just overall respect level and the history of music yeah and i think it's because honestly and i love led zeppelin i would say that i'm I'm kind of in that category like I kind of have like an overall I have feeling of like there's something about Led Zeppelin's music that is more rooted I think maybe in classic songwriting what right. they did more earthy. is their sound was rooted in in uh, tradition sure and then they took it to another place like they took right. blues to another place made it heavier they took uh, the singer songwriter stuff and folk mm-hmm. and then added that put another layer on it another right. layer of both mysticism Intensity, mm-hmm. uh, you know the whole just rock and roll aesthetic. Yeah. You know of what Jimmy Page 
just watch the guy play. Yeah. yeah, guitar god thing, and then Bonham. Nobody had ever really played drums with that type of feel and that, that sort sound. of heavy-handed sound, and then it was recorded in a way that really brought out those qualities. Mm-hmm. When you look at Bonham play, it's not like he's hitting crazy hard, right? but he's hitting crazy good. Yeah, it just and sounds thunderous. feel was right, and yeah. his dr- drums were tuned a certain way. And it was more, uh, more broad appeal, I guess. And then Rush, you know, honestly, like, it was sort of more for the nerds. It's yeah. they call the it Dungeons Wiz- and Dragon lyrics. Yeah, it's like wizard rock and yeah. like more math. It's busier, mm-hmm. which kind of like if you're a highbrow musician, that equals like a lack of taste. Right. And then obviously the lyrics are very heady, <laughs> yeah. but then they're sung by a very like um, witchy. What woman. were you playing earlier? I was playing Fly by Night. Yeah, so anyway, there's there's almost like a humor, like there. Yeah, his voice is incredibly high. What I found interesting is in the the recent um, that awesome long documentary they released a couple years ago. Yeah, yeah. Where Neil Peart was talking about pretension, you know, and I think prog rock and specifically Rush would get bashed for being pretentious. Mm-hmm. And he's like, it's not pretentious. The word pretentious means you're pretending something. Right. We weren't pretending anything. We loved what we did and we meant it. Yeah, they, that's why everybody who likes them feels it. Mm-hmm. Because it's real to them and therefore it's real to somebody who's into it. Yeah, that's the heart of what music is. It's like... They're real to themselves. Yeah, if you're true to what you dig, that'll either... That'll polarize your audience most often. Right. If you get a lukewarm response from everybody, it's highly doubtful that what you're doing as an artist is... is really reaching... It's really true yeah. and you're reaching deep into yourself. Um, and I think the cool thing too that they had going for them was melody too like later on especially but they were good melody writers so you could they always had songs that you could remember for the most part I mean there's obviously even their epic songs are like things there's pieces you could remember like the riffs and the they, they just had a knack for melodic writing you know which a lot of bands don't have a lot of prog bands are void of that so like King Crimson later on were melodic but early on it was like I'm not saying they didn't have melody, but it was definitely a harder music to grasp. Mm-hmm. You had to definitely be into that kind of darker, diminished chord, diminished sounding music. Yeah, the harmonically they were like in a more dense place. Where Rush was definitely more like a, a good cross pollination between like a band like King Crimson and Yes, where they had sunny music, but they also had a lot of improv. It was the kind of virtuosity that even a young person could understand. Right, I think it Which was is, like. It was this sort of, like, you know, virtuosity on a four-piece drum set it maybe takes more understanding than virtuosity where you're going, like, from this <laughs> tone all the way across to that tone. It just looks like a... Right. Yeah. I was talking to Taylor Hawkins about that, how he was talking about the around-the-world thing he does, and we were talking about why it's so appealing, and he's like, I think it's about the velocity and the way he did it. Like, mm-hmm. nobody had really done it like that before. Yeah, like, and it was simple, but nobody had really attacked the drums in that kind of way. It's like when you hear a pianist go Liberace. Yeah, <laughs> it's like whoa, he yeah, went from low impressive. to high. He's yeah, the yeah. whole instrument. <laughs> he really did take it to that sort of like epic place of flashiness where it was in. It made you an easy target. He was right. an easy target. Right. It didn't help that they were wearing like wizard outfits in certain areas <laughs> either. That makes you an easy target. But that was sort of in style, I guess. 
Um, but did you think it was cool the way he had orchestrated drum parts too? Like you, me not even being a drummer could remember all his drum parts. Yeah. I think that's interesting. I mean, I can't remember yeah. every Rush drum fill. I mean, a Yes drum fill, or every Led Zeppelin drum fill. Yeah. But if I'm listening to a Rush song, I can remember those fills. Like that's special. I don't know a lot of people that can do that. Yeah, it's can't. I, he's he was a rhythmic composer, and I think that that was rooted in his. Um, his writing capability like yeah, the fact it. that he wrote lyrics the fact that he was very like um, well read mm-hmm. he was really into writing and I think writing is about you know structure and right. and telling a story and I think he kind of wanted to bring the drums, huh? that aesthetic I think to the drums yeah. like storytelling and like here's the story I'm telling it mm-hmm. this is the story that goes with the song and like right. don't change it because that's you know right. that's the story he was making like literature for drums I think in a way it's really interesting. It's a good lesson in bands, too, like, because I know one thing that makes them unique, well, there's a lot of things that make them unique, but one thing is that they all individually had a sound, like Alex Lifeson played a certain way that's definitely his, mm-hmm. like, you can tell it's him. Getty Lee, obviously, with his bass, which was an extension of Chris Squire, but it's still, like, when you hear him, you know it's him. Yeah. You know, and then Neil Peart obviously had a very individualistic style, but... You know, I just find them really fascinating. Why? Why do they speak to me in such a way? Like when I hear their music, I get this nostalgic feeling. Like it's so rooted in the core of my musicianship. And I've listened to some hardcore like stuff that's way more advanced. Mm-hmm. But I always find myself going back to that and feeling the yeah. same feeling as I did when I was a kid. It's a good question of, of like, is it because it was it defined a certain period of your life, and I no think, matter what music it was, it would still be nostalgic. Sure. Or. I mean, I think it's arguably it's something. There's something special about Rush, is they appeal yeah. to certain people. Because if that wasn't true, they wouldn't have existed. From liter- I mean, how many years is that? Forty years? Yeah, it's a long time since the early '70s, '73. Yeah, so we're talking over forty years of like a band that continually would sell. I think they were consistent at selling about a million records a year. That's incredible. Um, obviously, in their heyday, more, but their fans were rabid because there mm-hmm. was something in their music that felt a certain way. Yeah. And MSG. If you didn't, if you didn't, <laughs> MSG, if you didn't find, if you didn't like what that feeling was, then you hated them. And if you sure. liked it, you were like, it was either a guilty pleasure or you mm-hmm. unabashedly loved it. Like when I was a kid, I loved it from the time like I was eight or nine years old. It inspired me to want to drum. Oh yeah. And then I fell in love with it, learned all the rush parts, would play along to it. Um, I really, and then the police also. So mm-hmm. like I was really into the police. It's really interesting into that Earth. those two bands had. There's a correlation between those two bands sometimes. Strange, yeah. Because of the drumming aspect of it, like Stuart Copeland and then Neil. We did find out recently that Neil is actually influenced by Stuart Copeland in the early '80s. Yeah, it's the Signals record, right? Yeah, I think so. Like he, he started to hear that a cranked up snare drum and the use of splash cymbals mm-hmm. and little timbali things there were little nuances that yeah. you wouldn't imagine those two people would like or that Neil would grab from yeah the reggae a, thing yeah like one of his contemporaries but you hear it that's but, some of his best drumming I think is Signals what do I you agree think? you like that one like that era of his drumming I think he was it was amazing there was a there was a quality to his touch mm-hmm. that like there was so much intensity in the way he <clears throat> like he hit the drum yeah. with a certain kind of power and every hit meant something and he it wasn't quite there earlier but that period of like I would probably say late 70s up to like the middle 80s or even even further on 
that remained, but mm-hmm. I think the recording quality wasn't the same. They yet. fell into the overly digital, right, and thinner sounding recordings of right. the of the '80s, so it didn't translate as much as it does when you mm-hmm. listen to like signals. Um, Moving pictures, permanent waves. Yeah, those albums sound great. You still pull them up today, I mean, if you crank that up, mm-hmm. it's got a punchy. Qu- you can really feel the drums. Yeah. yeah, it's part of the part of the sonic, you know, stuff that was going on though with the tape and stuff. But yeah. you could also just feel that he was hitting the drums, and I love that. And that's how Stuart Copeland played. But I think what what I was getting at is just that, like, when I was 15, 16 years old, I still loved Rush. And then I discovered Vinnie Caluda and Dave Weckl, mm-hmm. and my eyes were opened, and then I started to see, like, what you could say was, like, missing from Rush, or, like, and then I got really into Sting, and sort of, like, it's funny, because I still, like... kind of grew up a little bit. I yeah, think. it grew up a little bit, but it also, like, um, those were natural progressions. Sure. It is still emotional music that's about great playing, but that... Um, that has a real heavy intellectual component. Like, mm-hmm. I always loved music that made me feel, but always gave me something to think about. Right, yeah. The philo- I think, philosophical end of it, yeah. Yeah, and Sting was kind of a natural jumping-off point because mm-hmm. he was a great lyricist. Um, but he was making more, what you might say, timeless, mature music and a little mm-hmm. less progressive and, and uh, playfully, I don't know, circus-like or something, <laughs> yeah. But it's funny because I think one of the... Um, I wanted to say this earlier, but one of the things about the, the melodic thing with, with Rush and then also mm-hmm. the uh, uh, the way the lyrics play against the melodies, mm-hmm. I think you get a weird result when lyrics are written kind of, and then melodies are written from the lyrics. Yes. It's very difficult. You hear this in um, uh, James Taylor sometimes, you hear it in Joni Mitchell sometimes, you definitely heard it in like the second Alanis Morissette record. Mm-hmm. There's certain artists you hear where you're like, there's something about it, you just go, they wrote the lyrics first. Right. The lyrics it's almost like they're like, the lyrics are steering the melodies and mm-hmm. words tend to land in clunky places and you can mm-hmm. sort of, and I think some of that would happen with Rush, where sure. you hear like a strange phrase or a word that didn't necessarily sing well, but they just did it anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you'd be like... <laughs> that tasted a little funny Yeah, yeah Well, it's like funny Because Elton John did that too uh-huh. Like he would take the lyrics And write a song around it His stuff felt less like that And then, I mean, there's like Yeah, there's like a lineage Of people that do that Like the songwriter With the lyricist And the melody guy mm-hmm. It's an interesting way of writing And it definitely has A different feel to it You can totally make it work And it can be invisible, I think mm-hmm. I don't think there's It's a hard and fast rule By any means Like, But with them, I know what you mean There's like a way They had to figure out How to make this philosophical word stuff happen yeah to music like how are we going to make this work you know and obviously Getty was feeling it because he's the guy selling it yeah. he's the guy singing it and feeling it so it must be, obviously he felt it I'd be very curious to see how certain songs are written compared to others like because mm-hmm. there are certain songs that really feel inevitable and mm-hmm. like they're the words roll off the tongue and there's a there's a um, I guess a consistency or a real sort of alignment was that later in their career, though? Because they might have got think better. I think so. At... I think, well, Losing It is an example. Yeah, I was just thinking the same thing. You were? Yeah. yeah. It's like very emotional sounding. And... and dude, the song that Geddy Lee wrote by himself. Which one's that? Um, oh, gosh. I'm going to find it. You know you wrote a song by himself. Yeah, talk, talk Amongst Yourselves. 
Well, I can say also while you're looking that up, the first song I learned on guitar when I was 12 years old was Xanadu. Can you believe that? Dude. The first lick can I you learned. Play it? I learned that lick first on guitar, and then I learned the chords. Which I don't remember the chords actually, but they're all those open Alex Lyson voicings, you know. And that was the cool thing about him as a guitar player too, is he had that open voicing thing. Like this chord especially. It's so rush. It's the first song of, of hemispheres. I mean it's the first chord of hemispheres. Oh yeah. That's what I like about them. It's like they they all have such identifiable things about them. Yeah. And Alex Lyson's lead guitar playing kind of evolved from being sort of Jimmy Page-ish to like more legato and and, and even kind of new wavy with his sound. Mm-hmm. Had a lot of chorus and a lot of tremolo bar. Whammy bar right. stuff, but um Man, there's just something about that band that like it was very highly influential for me as a as a musician and it was a great launching pad it like got me interested in other things that I would have probably not been into because of their progressive music you know yeah like Jeff Beck Wired and records like that and then Alan Holsworth and I think it was a great for both of us I think it was a great launching pad as a just in terms of art I, I agree and then it like I think what what was weird about it is that you kind of feel like you mature past Rush, and then you come back to it with a new appreciation for what it is. Like, yeah. I think I matured past it because I think, you know, my peer group or whatever. When I started getting into like songwriting and also like um, drummers like Vinnie Caluda and mm-hmm. and Jeff Porcaro, where like the subtlety was in the feel, or there was a different layer of really improvisation because I think that was what was right. really missing in, in Neil Peart's playing is right. improvisation and then also a sense of groove that wasn't as like I realized later that Neil Peart's drumming actually moved a lot mm-hmm. in a very organic way but yeah. the feeling that he gave was, was of authority Right. so like I can recall a moment when you know I went through a period of like four or five years where I just went nuts practicing to a click track mm-hmm. so I was like I gotta get my time together yeah. and I just drove myself nuts and then I went back and I realized that, you know, a lot of those Rush recordings weren't recorded to a click. Mm-hmm. And when I'd play to them, I'd find, I'd find myself going like, oh my gosh, did yeah. I just Rush or drag? But it was Neil, Neil's time yeah. kind of floating and stuff. And I didn't realize that that was happening until later. And I'd be yeah. like, oh, I always felt like that part was weird, but I always blame myself. Sure. <laughs> Must be me. Because my time wasn't great, you know? His time was definitely better than mine, but yeah. it was a strange... Yeah, I wonder when he started playing the click tracks. I wonder, yeah. he, I wonder what album... It's funny, this is like such a nerdy podcast, but I'm really enjoying it. Who cares? We both have glasses <laughs> on. I wore those. I wore these just for this Rush podcast. Four eyes. I want to get Professor on you people. I think it was Different Strings. Oh, I love that song. I think Getty was. And I love his drumming on that song too. He's got such subtle. This is so nerdy. I love it. He's got such subtle drumming. He's so subtle. Like the way he goes, that kind of stuff is so like awesome when he puts it in there. Yeah. And Alex Lyson guitar solo is really good in that. I love the. I just love the vibe of that song. Yeah, they have some. They have some like song moments throughout their career, you know? But it's, you know, one thing that's kind of lacking in today's music, not to sound old, but. You know, because I do listen to a lot of modern music and I do enjoy it. But Gramps, come on, give me come the- on, Gramps. But the thing I do admit is like the the idea of three people getting together in a garage and forging a sound, and then making history. You know what I'm saying? That sounds really overstating something, but it's true though. I mean, those three guys got together, played in garages, you know, and ended up making a sound that 
ended up selling millions of records and changing a lot of people's lives, including ours, you know? If it wasn't for them, we wouldn't be playing the way we play, you know? And, like, what's happening nowadays is I don't see, you know, what's... You know, probably the issue with that is that kids probably don't see... Maybe in the hardcore scene, you know, like the those, uh, what do you call that, the warp Tour scene, you still have those kind of bands. Mm-hmm. And music's evolved, obviously. We're not, we're not playing the same old kind of rock music, so it's like, like I said, it's old man talk because it's not. I mean, it's but I just, do miss that it's the individuality, just historic context, context. Because like a lot of the scene stuff, you know, it does have that mentality. But when they go to record, it all sounds the same. Clearly, the drums are quantized and the snares are replaced. And yeah, there's no human. Like there's no individuality in sound. It's at least my. You know, I'm not in that world, so I don't want to overgeneralize. But I know the stuff that I've heard. Yeah, it probably has a more core. Thing like you're talking about like a rawness right if it would be captured that way like if rick rubin went in and captured those sure. bands but i think they end up going in and like just quantizing all the double bass and which using is today the slate how, snare drum i mean that's that's okay because that's how things evolved i mean that's where we're at i mean the 80s were like that too where everything was quantized everything was like yeah. and that's it's the way okay things, but it's sort of I but mean, i miss it i mean I, could, I guess that's the thing you just miss what you don't have anymore yeah and you gotta like i mean this is like you know, opinion alert, but if you can, in a, in a day and age when you can fix everything, like, do you though? Yeah. Fix some stuff, but like you can actually wring the humanity out of everything oh, if you yeah. so desire, but it takes some self-control and some like artistic intent to go, here's what I'm fixing, here's what I'm quantizing, here's what I'm tuning, here's what I'm not, and like be like specific with right. your intent. As Maybe. opposed to just like automatically out of insecurity, quantize everything, tune everything, just yeah, so you know. Scared. Yeah, you're scared to be judged for something. Yeah, which is why, like you know, obviously um, the top of the heap of like you know pop artists that that have an element of um, rawness. Rawness, you know, you can tell that throughout Adele's records that you know like. Um, her big song, the kick drum. There's a fire. Yeah, that one. Yeah, there's. What's that called again? Uh, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it's just an Adele song. They're um, all the same. Yeah, they're not. But they just have a girl singer on it. <laughs> yeah, some random girl. <laughs> but the point is, is that not all those notes are perfectly in tune, or you can hear that she starts and then pulls up to the pitch. Yeah, and there's a style thing. There's a thing. They're using pitch as like a emotional element in the music yeah yeah isn't that kind of weird that pitch becomes now a thing like we're not going to auto-tune because that's like it'll be different it's weird how it like goes around and like this it's at first it's all about robot vocals and it's like to be different we're going to not tune this and that's going to be cool T-Pain yeah I guess that's how things evolve they have to get to the they have to reach that wall where it's like it's been too much Mm -hmm. and then they have to kind of what do they do next don't tune the vocals how's that sound Oh, wow. That sounds cool. Yeah, that's novel. Like, it's a new concept. Here's something that's going to be a bummer for people, but I don't really think <laughs> I'm going to say this, and people are going to be like, what the hell are you talking Bring about? Bring it, Grandpa! I don't really think Adele is that amazing. Oh, talk to me. In the world of, like, Aretha Franklin, and the world of, like, Joni Mitchell, and true, I mean, I think, of course, in today's age, we're stoked to have her. Because in today's age, there's not a lot of people like her. So in that regard, I give her all the respect in the world. And I, so are you taking something she's definitely away, talented. away from Adele? Or are you just kind of saying that, like... I think we overemphasize her 
her value in some ways because we're just all starving for something that's a little bit more real. And it's not to take anything away from her because she is a talented person. So you're saying like you're in the desert and you get like a sizzler steak. Yeah. And you haven't had one in 10 years as you've been traveling through the desert. And you're like, this is the best steak I've ever had. I've been having roaches. I don't think you're calling Adele Sizzler. No, not at all. I think she's talented. You're kind of saying like, you know, if she, maybe if she was around during Aretha's age, would she be... Yeah, would she still be considered what she is right now? I don't think she would. And not. I think she would be, people would think she's awesome. I don't think anybody would say she sucks because she certainly doesn't suck and she's talented and she writes great songs. None of that, it has nothing to do with actually her as an artist because I think her as an artist is great. I think it's more to do with people like on, like I look on Facebook, people geeking out like it's so great to have Adele. She's amazing. And I'm like thinking, yeah, but is, is it really that amazing? It's really not her fault or her. It's not, it has nothing to do with her actually, uh, yeah. funnily enough. It's, it's more not about what society. she lacks or even what she excels at. I think her on her own. This is my opinion now. I'm not trying to change yours, but... No, I mean, I felt bad for saying it. <laughs> no, it's... <laughs> it's like, because I, I like her. It's good to just kind of think it through, because I, th- I think mainly it's just that, like, she now represents something. Sure. It's like, there's a, only room for one of those. Yeah, she's a So, movie. like, everybody who comes up who's a great singer writing organically, honest songs is, like, the next Adele. You right. can't just be, like, another other artist who sings right. great, who writes solid timeless songs sure you're now in that camp of Adele yeah Yeah. it's almost like we need okay we got one of those cool we're done everybody else is a a second best yeah like a way like if you're not Adele you're not even worth bothering with that style yeah there is one we already have that which because it was really Duffy and Adele like that for a while that was like the two sort of like singers that did that you know there was obviously Amy Winehouse Amy Winehouse she was awesome yeah, I kind of find Amy, funnily enough, I find her way more unique than Adele. And I, I don't mean that because she stylistically did rip some things off, but I found her perspective lyrically really unique. Yeah, she's definitely on more quirky. Yeah, quirky. But she also had, I think, fewer songs that... Sure, yeah. That's stood, true. ...stood the test of time because she had a more jazz it, it aesthetic. Yeah. You know, I I was t- I watched that documentary, and I was, I was it, it was interesting to me that she was like, the level of fame and notor- and like um, notoriety, but also just kind of like respect that she got, mm-hmm. relative to how many songs she has that are sort of public knowledge, mm-hmm. is really interesting. Like you got like Rehab, Valerie. That's the only one they know. Right. <laughs> yeah, th- I know. There's another one that I that I'm having trouble thinking of, but right. That's the point. Is like, what other artist has her stature? And I know she died, so it elevated she the element mystique. of legend. But two or three songs and that stature had a lot to do with her voice. Yeah, and her 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 she, energy, her she whole was weird. yeah, her whole. But thing. she was really drugged out. That was the, like watching that documentary it was kind of sad. It was like Very you're sad. watching some, you're like watching a car crash because here's this girl that that wanted to be a success, became a success, and then was disappointed by success, and therefore became an alcoholic, a drug user. Yeah, it's like it's kind of a sad tale, and it happens to a lot of people that are trying to fill that hole of whatever it is they're looking for. You know, obviously she's looking for love and acceptance from her dad and, right. her, and her mom. I don't know about her mom so much, definitely the dad. Yeah, it sounded like her mom was a little bit more passive and didn't really know what to do with this. And the dad was doing creepy things like promoting her career and like... Later on, yeah. right? I don't really know. And he was out of the picture early on. That's what I saw in the movie. He was out of the picture and then he came back in. It's just, you know, 
it's sad to see you realize we're parents so you realize how important it is to be there for your kid you know it's like because they can end up going bonkers (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) let's do a podcast on raising children wouldn't that be great (laughs) y'all have kids right but you know like to, to put a cap on the Adele thing I like Adele I like her records I like her songs and everything I just don't put the same importance on her as some people probably do but that's in a way, in a way, what, like what's behind the concept of what Adele represents is that we're like, and I've heard this talked about before, but it's almost like the the middle class of artists mm-hmm. is is disappearing. Sure. And now all you have is like, not all you have, but there's a, a real trend that. towards like a ton of like semi unknown or or thriving indie artists that have small fan bases, mm-hmm. kind of all over the internet. Then you have these few stars, most of which started their journey before the internet really took over. You know, because sure. I think yeah, Adele was before that. Yeah, it was like you have Timberlake, Bieber, Adele, this hand, these handful of like even you know, Bruno Mars is before the whole Rihanna. Bruno yeah. Mars was right at the tail end of when like, those days of taking an artist with a lot of talent. And go, launching them from nothing to like that type of status is hard. I, it's, it doesn't seem to be happening as much. I think or it's, not in the same way. Anyway. Yeah, it's like they're, I think they're all trying to figure out. We've worked with a lot of them, you know. Like we've we've done a couple. We had some recordings last year with new artists. You know, like Hudson Thames is one, and then um, uh, who else? Yeah, Irusi and uh, hey Violet. Obviously, people that we work with, Irusi and Sonny, and then Hey Violet, mm-hmm. and and Colton Dixon and who Colton launched. Dixon. He had the American Idol machine, which really, I think, was a benefit to him. Yeah. But he's also a true artist in the sense that he knows exactly who he is. He never, you know, he's an interesting one because when we first met him, he definitely knew he had an identity. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really important for young artists. It's like he knew who he was. And the people were coming up to him right when he had got kicked off or, or when he didn't make it. And people are offering him all kinds of deals, you know, stuff, pop deals and Christian deals. And he took the Christian deal because he's like, that's who I am. And I'm sure the other ones are more lucrative. Yeah, I mean, thankfully he had that American Idol fan base, and it really helped because the first that, record sold much better because of it. I think. Yeah, and he really, I mean, there was really nothing. There was nothing really out that was selling that much that had that rock aesthetic. Yeah, we were able to make music with him. I know it's, it's, that we could not have made in any other context. It's true. Yeah, it was fun. That was a really fun record to make because, like you said, we were there was a couple records that were like that. Um, the first Cherry Bomb record that we worked on. Yeah, totally. Was like it was like us getting to be artists with the band, you know, yeah. which you know, I know out there in the world everybody thinks that, you know, Cherry Bomb wrote their own songs or Justin Bieber write their own songs, but you know, there it's not true. I mean, the artists have a perspective, but there's the producers are kind of a part of the band. Yeah, and it's not hidden. I mean, it's no, like people know. They now. go on co-writes and we get together and yeah. and help. It's like that's what producers do and Yeah. But those two records were fun because Especially Cherry Bomb, we got to live out our sort of like rock and roll fantasy. <laughs> it was fun to sort of help be one of many mentors in that whole. You know, those those girls had a great, um, and still do have a great team of people around them oh, that yeah. help that have helped them grow because they're truly talented. Yeah, now and, they're Hey Violet, and they're amazing. They're great yeah. performers live, and they've grown a lot. Yep. You so, know. wow, we went from. 
Rush to Hay Violet. From Ru- everything from Rush to Hay Violet. To Adele. To Adele, to the disappearing We well, can't talk class. about Rush for a whole podcast. That would just be too geeky. Heck yes, you can. <laughs> Do we have any questions today, or are we just kind of... Let's see, I, I only put out the... Uh, floating in the ether. The Hay asked some questions, like, literally minutes before we went on, so let me check. That so what's your uh, favorite... <laughs> What's your favorite Rush album? That's a good question. I love that question. I have um, one of my favorite Rush albums. I have two. One is Hemispheres, because that album has a special place in my my, um, teenage heart. (laughs) Yeah. I just love that record. I thought that was like a... Everything about it was pretty cool. And then the second record I really liked. Wait, say that again. Which which record? Hemispheres. Okay. And then the second one was Signals. I think Signals is really a great record. Even more so than Moving Pictures, because... I like moving pictures, but I really love signals. Mm-hmm. And you know what's funny? What was that one record I used to, with my friend Evan Stone, we would listen to this one. It was the one, it's the red cover. Dude, that's my, that's one of my favorites. Hold Your Fire. Hold Your Fire. That was a good one. I listened to that one a lot in high school. That to me was like a, the pinnacle of their, like, songwriting, arrangement skills, them being kind of aware of maybe what they were doing that was a little bit more just for their own benefit right. a little more self-serving playing mm-hmm. yet still not losing their identity with their sort of virtuosic you know sure. arrangements and stuff but it was definitely like more of a pop record for them like yeah. they were they were embracing that side of their right but for them that was probably like new yeah <laughs> it's like now we're writing songs that's cool right let's let's go that direction which is is a natural progression for a band that took the other thing to the extreme so mm. your favorite record Ascentia for the parched human being in all of us. That's what the, the fine cleanest says. water in the planet. I got one too. Straight from the rivers of Peru. Very tasty. Yeah, signals and so hemispheres, and I also like the one you just said. Hold, hold your, your fire. fire. So what about you? I would say. Isn't that delicious Peruvian water? I would say not. <laughs> I would say not roll the bones. Yeah. <laughs> so you're going to pick one that you don't like first. Yeah, um, I don't think any, anybody's favorite was roll the bones. I was still around, though. Was, was there still, a rap in that song? I was trying to like it. Yeah, there was. That's the, the bad stuff. I would say my favorite Rush record is... I would say it is Hold Your Fire. I like that one. That has Time Stand Still on it, right? Yep. Time Stand Still. Amy Mann's on that track? Yeah. Amy Dude. I, I would say that, like... Moving Pictures has a special place in my heart because that record was like the first one. My 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 little buddy that helped that like was <laughs> by my side as I was learning to be a drummer. Sure, yeah. And you know, I probably say Moving Pictures and Signals and then Hold Your Fire. Yeah, that seems that's good. pretty close to yours. And then Permanent Waves. Wait, not Permanent Ooh, Waves. I love Permanent Waves though, too. There's great stuff on that. But I was thinking of. Um, uh, the record right before Hold Your Fire um, Oh, Power Windows? Power Windows yeah. uh, There's a song on there called Middletown Dreams mm-hmm. That I think is one of their best songs I have to hear that one I didn't know, I don't know that. That's like kind of when I sort of checked out a little bit from Rush Well, like, I think, right yeah, that Grace was like the when they started to You started to feel like they were like betraying you a little well, bit Well, I'll never forget when I bought Grace Under Pressure And I was like <laughs> All their hair was I was cut. way into Rush And I was like, I was into Van Halen and Rush And all these really rock, like these 
rock and roll bands, mm-hmm. you know. And so then I <laughs> I go to the record store and Rush album came out, and I'm like, I can't wait to get this. I get it, and they look like freaking new wave dorks. I'm like, what the hell is <laughs> my band? And so then I went, I go, this has got to be breaking against your head. I'm like, so <laughs> I was upset and jarred by the by the album cover by itself. And so I, I take it home and I put it on the turntable, and I'm like. Synthesizers everywhere. Like I was used to synths, but they had taken this to a whole new level. Yeah, I just remember being devastated by that record. Like, and all my friends were like, a lot of my friends, (laughs) some of my friends were older, so they were like, "I told you, Rush is lame, dude." (laughs) And I'm playing the new Rush album. They use it against you. And they're like, now my friends think of a door because I like this band. It's like I had everything against me at that moment. Wow. But I've grown to like that album. Actually, I think it's pretty cool. But when I first got it, it was definitely a... I'm sure a lot of guys that were in a rush had that same experience. Like, what just happened? Yeah, so that had Distant Early Warning, After oh, yeah. Image, Red Sector A, The Enemy Within, The Body Electric, Kid <laughs> Gloves, so Red Lenses, Between the Wheels. It is interesting to look, though, that... All about nuclear war. Most of those songs... It was, did that come out during the Cold War? 84? Yeah. yeah, that's like during the Reagan era. Um, none of those songs really, like... Are considered amongst the rush. The only one is Red Sector A. That's a great play. Just the intro of that. It probably won't play the intro because it'll probably play some random. Oh play. yeah. Let's see what iTunes gives us. Holy. Let's see here. It gives the- That's the best part of the song. Yeah. There you can. Rush is still in there. I just think they. They changed their during style, that which period. Is totally cool, but they, did, I guess I they were on pissed. they were on that <laughs> progression towards because um, what was the album before that? Uh, Signals. Yeah. Oh, we got alarm. But I'm going to turn it off for you fine folks out there. Yes, yeah, Signals was I think before that. Yeah. See, how, going from Signals to that album, I mean, it's sort of, it's a natural progression, but it was definitely a bummer. Yeah. Because Signals is way more rock than that record, and just cooler. And part of it too, I heard this is like a. Uh, definitely a rumor that I don't know if it's totally true but that that something happened with the tapes for yeah. Signals I don't know exactly what happened but something bad happened I remember something then I was trying to think about what, what it could have been and I think it was that they um, I think maybe they lost the multi-tracks and all they had were rough mixes on half inch or something Whoa, is that true? I think it might have been something like that where they had to just go well this is what we got I guess those are the mixes that's hardcore I didn't know that that's guessing, though. I just remember I hearing that there was something about it where mm-hmm. they had to sort of like, oops. Those are good rough mixes, then. Yeah, it's. I think that's the thing about Signals is there was a rawness to it that made Grace Under Pressure feel more slick. It was very slick. Yeah. Too synth-oriented for my taste. Yeah, it felt... And slight. I like synths. I love, like, synth music, but for some reason, that band with synths bummed me out. Yeah, and Signals and band. obviously Subdivisions is very synth heavy. It's just the way that they use synth in the next. Record. Signals had Subdivisions, and then it also had That's a great song, The Weapon, Digital Man, Chemistry, and it had Losing It, and yeah. Countdown. All great songs. It's a winning album. Winning. <laughs> <laughs> Do we have questions? Uh, let's see. If not, I can make up my own questions. That's true. We can question each other. This was uh, a fun podcast. I like talking about Rush. Yeah, man. I think Rush is great. And we have to leave room for Mike to interject his Rushisms. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, no questions yet. No questions. We can fine. give people enough time. That's fine. And we will enjoy or, the questions when we get them. Yeah. And 
you know, this has been a fun experience. I love doing these podcasts because it's cool because you delve into things that you normally maybe not even think about and you go off into different, like especially educational stuff like some stuff we were talking about a couple podcasts ago about, yeah. I don't know, scales and whatever the hell we were talking about. Mm-hmm. You know Ninja, Ninja about- Bud Wrestling. Yeah, that's my number one. Hobby. What was my joke earlier today? Oh man, there were so many that <laughs> that I would have to edit for the podcast. We'll just edit the midget mud wrestling right now. <laughs> I think that one of the this things will be my legacy, our legacy, Adam. Our kids are going to watch these one day, and they're yeah. going to say those guys were a bunch of dipsticks. Uh, yeah, they won't have time. They'll be too busy on doing something else. They'll be playing the internet. <laughs> playing the internet. Playing the internet. They will be inside the internet, yeah. flying through the wires <laughs> while oh, their okay, body that. lays in a, in a pool of, of weird liquid. <laughs> Green gel. Yeah. It's not slime, but Virtual it's Virtual reality. I got a question. This is way off topic of the music because music's boring, so let's talk about something different real quick. Yeah, I hate music. To end our podcast, I think it'd be funny. You and I have a, a thing about Mike Tyson. Yeah, so, we do. Uh, you know, this would actually be a good... People that watch this, if you're a boxing fan, I think... Here, I'm like the rabble rouser, man. You're a rabble rouser. <laughs> <laughs> My thing about Adele, bumming people out. This is going to bum people out again. Uh, Mike Tyson, I think he was overrated. And I'll give you my reasons why, and then you can expand on your reasons why you think he's not overrated. All right. Okay. I will, I will tell you what I think is great about him. It's <laughs> like, who am I to talk about Mike Tyson? But this is my opinion from being a boxing Everybody's got aficionado. I love boxing. And especially boxing from the even from the '60s up until like current day, you know, I think the Klitschko guys suck. But um, Mike Tyson, yeah, boring, just like <laughs> boring stuff. Anyways, uh, Mike Tyson was exciting. He went in there and he just tried to kill you, uh-huh. and he'd throw big hooks and, and he was fast, yeah, really explosive. But he fought bums, and look at his record. Bone Crusher Smith. <laughs> Who the hell is Bone Crusher Smith, dude? Like, when has that guy ever been something that you want to talk about? I don't even about? remember who that That's is. That's the guy he... I think he might have beat him... Oh, no, Trevor Burbrick. Okay, there's another okay. name. That's yeah, the yeah. guy he beat... No, the guy he beat for the title was Michael Spinks. That's not a bum, right? He wasn't amazing. He was okay. Okay. He was okay. He beat Larry Holmes when Larry Holmes was ancient. All right. Larry okay. Holmes was... Uh, if you ever watch old fights with Larry Holmes, he was awesome. He had an amazing left jab. He had a great right right hand. Okay. So, who did he fight that was, like, amazing? Let's find out. Let me think about this for a second. Okay, I know. Razor Ruddick. Razor Ruddick still had a lot of holes in his style. Like, he was still kind of a weird fighter, had an amazing uppercut, but he was also sort of, like, clunky. Right. He was always looking for the one punch. Yeah. Which was an uppercut. Tyson beat him. And that was probably... So are you saying that the era... Sorry, go ahead. It's the era. I guess, I guess the he's era a product what, of the era. The era have anybody else? Yeah, so let's look. Let's go back. There was no Ali in his area and yeah. era, and that's why? Yeah, if you go back to the 70s, you have Muhammad Ali fighting Ken Norton and losing and winning. Ken Norton was a great fighter. Muhammad Ali fought George Foreman, beat mm-hmm. George Foreman. George Foreman is an amazing, like, athlete, destroyer kind of fighter. He fought Sonny Liston, who was one of the mm-hmm. hardest punchers in the history of the sport. He fought Joe Frazier three times, who obviously is an amazing fighter. Mm-hmm. It's like, when you look at that, and you're like, wow, that guy, he fought the best of the best. And he lost, and he won, but he's like a legend. Like, and, he, and also the way he held himself as a human being. It's like he's one of those guys who was super influential. He made people like want to be something better. Mm-hmm. Mike Tyson, when he first came out, he did have a little bit of like, wow, that guy 
it's amazing. Well, it was rags to riches. It was. Yeah, it was he's like a poor kid that didn't have a good upbringing. Mm -hmm. I don't know Mike Tyson. I mean, uh, Ali's like total upbringing. I think he grew up with obviously better than Mike Tyson, most likely. But I just feel like Mike Tyson's always got this myth around him of him being so great. But the guys that he did fight that were really good, like Evander Holyfield, beat him. He fought Lennox Lewis. Did he ever beat Evander? No. He fought him once and lost. The and second he time he fought him, he bit his ear. Yeah. Well, that's kind of like winning. <laughs> it's winning by default. Yeah. It's personal best. Who's the best cannibal? That's a personal best moment. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> so, Just... my feeling about Mike Tyson, like Adele, is he's overrated. Okay. Ding! My turn. All right. Well, I would say that whoever's the most famous, combat sports in general, mm -hmm. let me take it to the philosophical I think combat sports in general are just, they appeal to our primal nature. As Dana White is famous for saying, you know, a zillion years ago, this is not what he said, but the basic idea <laughs> paraphrasing. is, paraphrasing here, is that like, back in the day, no matter how far in history you go, if there was a few guys standing around and two of them started fighting, the rest were watching, and it was a great show. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's yeah. just, it's in our DNA. Yeah, we want to see a battle. Yeah. Men and, do, mostly. And, and not saying women don't, because you have Ronda Rousey, and there are women who want to see this, too. For sure. I think human beings... Well, there's a classic story of, like, you know, the girl at the bar that wants their boyfriend to fight for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, whatever. But, so, along with that, I think people want somebody to look up to. I think people want to worship something. Like, I think it's the God-shaped hole mm -hmm. thing, and as that relates to modern culture. We want actors and musicians and, and, and sports stars to be larger than life and somebody that we can be like <gasps> and hero, awe worship, of, yeah. hero worship so when you talk about how primal the desire is for hero, hero worship and you talk about how primal fighting is and that really like in this modern age so few of us actually do it mm -hmm. yet you know back in the day I think we all had to know how to fight a little bit or hunt or mm -hmm. we were more physical with our bodies and it was a reality of life more so than now you can avoid it hunter gatherer yeah so I think we're drawn to it because there's a part of us that it almost I don't know the physicality of life is, is missing a little bit how we get our food etc but so I think what makes a great boxer is debatable because there's like is it just their skill or is it their skill plus, like, what they bring to the table in terms of their charisma, in terms of, like, their aura of, of power that they bring? Mm -hmm. And I think that there was nobody as feared as Tyson in the sport ever. I think nobody... Well, George Foreman was pretty feared. But I don't think when George Foreman walked into the ring, I don't think there was an aura like there was with Tyson, man. Remember that? Remember watching Tyson I mean, I would, with that just like freaking gray, weird, like old sweatshirt thing that he'd wear? He didn't like yeah, walk he was electric. flashy. But he also fought bums, guys that like weren't on that level. But that's not the point. <laughs> uh, it was so weird yeah. to, to look at a guy with a weird mousy voice yeah. that knocked people's Mike, heads I'm off. I'm going to kick your butt. Yeah, and then he'd get in there and it was just like, oh my gosh, Mike Tyson is fighting. Whoa! Yeah, it was exciting. He, he and brought excitement back to the He boxing. did not suck, man. Like, no, he, he didn't be, suck. You no. watch... Anybody in that level is obviously really good. 
yeah, and you watch those training videos yeah. of him and how like dedicated. When this is pre-prison, Mike Tyson. Yeah, I mean, when he's custom auto. He was a fierce, fast, destructive fighter. And his head movement. And yeah, his, it's like, kind of a bummer that he didn't fight people of that caliber because I think he would have done really well if not beat them. Yeah, because he would. I mean, he might have like okay, you do the classic thing that. They've actually computer generated. He wouldn't be Tyson Ali, versus Ali. He would be. So there. I think he would lose. Prom- may- maybe lose to Ali. Even he said. But that. dude, he was so fast that maybe he could get a lucky shot in. I but think that wouldn't hurt Ali though. Ali was had such a good chin that he would have taken it, and that would have taken all the fight out of Tyson. It's all conjecture. I know. They'll never see it happen. All I know is fun that to talk about though. Ali has had the power to knock out Tyson. Tyson had the power to knock out Ali. Guys at that level could knock each other out. And you think you're saying basically that Tyson couldn't find his chin because Ali was too know. elusive. I, the only time Ali never got knocked out, Tyson got knocked out several times. Right. So there's the proof right there. It's like he got hit by Sonny Liston. He got hit by the hardest puncher in heavyweight history, which is Ernie Shavers, and he got hit by George Foreman. But what are the measuring sticks for these these? You got to go statements? on I, I, these. It's, it's just facts. Go on boxing, you know, websites and stuff. Ernie Shavers is considered. I don't believe that they're facts. The hardest hitter of all time. Based on what machine that measures it? Based on the fighters that fought him, probably. You know? <laughs> yeah. He hit me harder than anybody ever hit a human being. But I would argue that even, like, but why would it's they more be... about accuracy than even power. He was accurate, and he was powerful. I mean, but I just don't think he would have done anything against Ali that Ali couldn't handle. That's Power's weird, too. And he would have to get... First of all, Ali would just get him at a distance and then he'd come at Ali and Ali would figure out you know what it came down to with that situation you know what this is dude this Smarts. is who would win Batman or Superman kind of <laughs> but I really do think Ali would have outsmarted him and even Tyson said in an interview that they said could you have beat Mike Tyson and he said no he goes yeah. Mike Tyson was too he said Muhammad Ali I don't know if he said this but I'm guessing this is what he said but something is the effect that like Ali was he said he was the master and he bowed down to him and he said he was really smart Tyson's smart for saying that too <laughs> you know I mean? Well, he's really not going to say I could, I could beat Muhammad Ali. You know, he's a pretty arrogant guy. He Maybe could, he would, but yeah, he's definitely... He, has, he, he likes Muhammad Ali. He has a lot of respect for history. Yeah. He watched endless tapes. He liked George Foreman, too. Yeah. Well, that's one thing I do respect about him, though, is that his his quest for, like, knowledge and going back into the history books. Yeah. And, like, he was a well-studied fighter. Really you know, the thing was. is, dude, he probably would have done... the thing. It's a bummer for him that he wasn't around during a, a really fertile boxing time because I think he would have done really well yeah you know? he, what he did in terms of inter- he was entertainment and power and like there was nothing like him at the time there was nothing like I think there's nothing you could use like him, him now for sure jeez there's never been anything like Tyson in terms of the cultural phenomenon that Tyson was in terms of like kind of what you want a fighter to be mm-hmm. like I think Ali I mean right now our new Ali I think is Conor McGregor yeah, the UFC. Like, yeah, it's very charismatic, very good, smart, super intelligent, super um, boastful, <laughs> boastful. Yet, but also, backs it up with some, with real stuff, and he predicts his rounds. Yeah, that's that's one of that's the cockiest thing you can do. I think as a fighter, predict your round. You can't deny him now. Like he's <laughs> and he wins and he does proven. it. Yeah, yeah. Muhammad Ali would do it, and sometimes not. It wouldn't happen, and he would just like yeah, brush it off. But. So far, so good for Connor. He's at the beginning, really, but he's worked his way to the top and done it, and. I like him a lot. I think he's fantastic. Yeah, and it's it's not um, these aren't accidents, you know. Like he works his butt off, and he's yeah. very technical, and he's just very smart. You, that that wise that wise ass like brain and mouth and mm-hmm. 
like that translates to how he deals with his physicality yeah. and how he trains. Like he's a smart, he's a smart guy across the board, and I think that's Muhammad Ali was a smart, smart guy. Yeah, because the they also have humor, and it takes it's, you have to be fu- if you're funny, you're smart because yeah. you got to think on your feet to be quick, you know. And those kind of guys that are, they have all those that that wit and the power, and also that's yeah, I think they're both. It's funny because he is kind of like the new Muhammad Ali. It's a different weight class, but there's nobody in the heavyweight division doing that at all. Non boxing in terms of he- right. who are the heavyweight guys in, in UFC? We have Cain Velasquez. Are um, anybody comparable to, to McGregor in terms of stature and ability? Well, John Jones is considered to be the number one pound per pound. But he's light heavyweight, though, right? Yeah, he's light heavyweight. He's going to probably move up to heavyweight. And, you know, he's. <laughs> he's made some not smart decisions, but he's like a smart to party guy. like a rock star. He sure does. <laughs> but he's he's a brilliant athlete. He's awesome. He'll yeah. get together. I think a lot of people go through a you know he's probably got a lot of money, a lot of fame. That's probably intoxicating for people. Yeah, I would say that John Jones just might be the best, the, the Bieber of UFC. <laughs> not quite that to that degree <laughs> but he's definitely a guy who his his fame got a little bit a hold of him yeah went to his head a bit and then for a second there it slightly uh, <laughs> it damaged his the respect he had a little bit in well, terms of just a person answer, so like, he never lost respect as a fighter but I think it was like people want just like I was saying earlier people want their fighters to be they either want to totally hate the fighter or they don't want to totally love him yeah but if you're like a real human being you're making mistakes watch out yeah, and that's what he was doing. Dude, I can't imagine being a super public person. I am. I can tell you about it. Yeah, I mean, this podcast is one of the well watched podcasts. I was going to say that because of this podcast, my fame has risen to a kind of a crazy degree. Yeah. So literally- just watch out, people. I might be in a Ferrari somewhere. I mean, there are dozens, literally dozens of, of views. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, what do you do with that kind of, like, adoration? Yeah, I mean... We have to have a podcast on our adoration, like, how that's affecting us. It's hard, man. I walk down the street, and you and nobody knows who you are, and nobody knows who I am. Yeah, it's like it hurts more than anything. Yeah, that's hard. Well, today was awesome. I actually really had a good time talking about Rush, and Adele, and boxing, and boxing. I think that's cool, man. It's it's they all have a correlation somehow. <laughs> they all the roads meet somehow. They do. I mean, especially those two sports and, and music. They just go. They cut to the core of who we are as, as people. And what it takes to be successful is, you know, the discipline that it takes to be well, that's the thing, a great discipline. artist and the discipline it takes to be a great fighter Yep. and the core parts of our humanity that they get in touch with, mm-hmm. you know, mano y mano. Yep. The discipline thing you said, it hits it right in the head. If you're going to be anything in the music business, you have to have discipline. And I think as an artist, you're, you're, you're a fighter, but you're fighting against kind of yourself in order to... to, to have that discipline and to, to be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. The hardest thing in the world is to fight against the des- the uh, desire to be careful and to protect yourself and your feelings and for sure not be vulnerable. very vulnerable yeah um, maybe that's a good note to end on what do I know well number eight was awesome looking forward to number nine we're actually gonna do it in a couple days but you won't see it until yeah Mike will be back we don't know if we'll get Mike's in um, thoughts on Russian time but maybe he can give us his thoughts on the nine Podcast number nine. Yeah. Number nine. Maybe <laughs> we'll talk we'll about just, the Beatles next. Yeah. We don't want to lose too many viewers. <laughs> we won't get into a rant of. I don't think anybody's ever just talked about the Beatles. 
<laughs> no, they're such. Nobody really gets into the Beatles, man. They don't understand them. They're mm-hmm. indie. They're so weird. Such an indie kind of niche band. Indie niche. Band. I do know. We won't mention any names, but there was somebody that never that didn't know any Beatles songs that we worked with, and and I felt old because <laughs> I'm not. I'm no master of the Beatles yeah, by any. I know a lot of Beatles. But I just felt sad for them. But to never have heard of the Beatles is it's sad. It's like not knowing who Beethoven or Miles Davis is. Yeah, I just want to talk to their parents and see if that they were locked under the stairs. <laughs> Where was your life. kid? You listen to Sandy Patty all day? What were yeah. you doing? Right, I got a weird reference for you. Sandy Patty. <laughs> On that note, I'm going to play Fly By Night. Oh, wait, we got a jam. Yeah. Maybe you play something, I'll just jam to you. All right. Um, With my Alex Lifeson like licks. Good night. I love you guys like I love cake. And off. See you next time. Frozen.
poison rain.